0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hello, and welcome to Computing Prime Time. I'm Larry Smarr. In this edition of the program, we'll be talking about bioinformatics and the human microbiome. Now, the field of bioinformatics exists at the intersection of computer science and biology, And technology is dramatically changing what we know about and how we track our individual microbiomes. Joining me for this conversation is Rob Knight, a computer scientist and professor of pediatrics at UC San Diego. Rob, maybe you could just start us off with a definition. What is a microbiome?
1: A microbiome is a collection of millions of genes in the microbiota, which is the trillions of tiny organisms that each of us has living on and inside our bodies. What's amazing to me is we think of the
0: insides of us down our GI tract as being inside us, but actually it's on the outside of us in a part of the environment because the surface of our GI tract, our gastrointestinal tract, and our skin basically enclose all of our human cells. And so what's really inside of us or on our skin, in our mouth, as far as microbiome is concerned, are are basically is a part of the environment.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, topologically, we're essentially a donut. And then um, if you think about the connections between the different parts of the surface of that donut when you stretch it out and mold it into the human form. It's amazing how different the different parts of the body are in terms of their ability to act as microbial habitats.
0: Yeah, so tell me about that. I mean, like, if you, you'd think if you swab the inside of your mouth or your skin, first of all, there are really microbes there? You know, most people, I don't think, think that way. But then they're different species or
1: even phyla? What, what is it? In fact, the difference between the microbes in your mouth and uh, the microbes in your gut in terms of being different microbial communities, if we compare them to communities out there on our planet, those communities are as different as, for example, a prairie in Nebraska versus the communities in a coral reef out in the Florida Keys. They're essentially non-overlapping environments. So you're like a whole planet uh, in terms of your ecosystems that you carry around. Right, exactly. It's not that we have just one microbiome, but we have a whole uh, we, we have a whole archipelago of uh, microbiomes, where each site is really its own island um, and has its own microbes. So let's talk a little bit about
0: these microbes. Um, you know, I was shocked to find when I first started working in this area that there were ten times as many microbial cells on on and in, in my body. Um, my GI tract as there are human cells. But that must mean they're smaller than human cells?
1: That, that's exactly right. So uh, all of those microbes only make up about three pounds of your body mass. So um, so although there's a lot more of those cells, each one is very tiny compared to, uh, compared to the eukaryotic cells mm-hmm. that make up the human body and that carry the human genome.
0: But each one of those uh, microbes has DNA in it, which is like 3 million, 5 million DNA bases long, whereas our human DNA is about 6 billion for the full duploid uh, DNA. But there's so many more species of these microbes that the genes on those must outnumber our human
1: genes by a lot. Yes, that's exactly right. So in terms of our human DNA, uh, as, uh, as, as you note, we have about six billion bases but a lot of that doesn't code for any proteins. So we only have about 20,000 genes spread across those 6 billion bases. So in contrast, a bacterial genome will consist of about 3 to 5 million bases of DNA, but uh, it'll have about uh, about 3 to 5,000 genes. Mm-hmm. And because there's at least a 1,000 different species, right away that gives you a gene count of 3 to 5 million bacterial genes compared to our 20,000 or so human genes. And so in terms of the number of unique genes and the capacity to carry out metabolism and to perform all kinds of molecular functions, uh, the bacteria have tremendously more capacity than we do. And that's not even counting the archaea, the fungi, the viruses, and all of the other things that are in the gut. Well, that's pretty wild
0: because the genome sequencing technology has got exponentially cheaper, so we can now explore these uh, much larger number of genes on the microbes. But it must mean then that in terms of health or disease, medicine, We've been missing most of the
1: DNA that our bodies depend on. Correct. And the key question in the field at the moment is how much does all that other DNA? play a role in our health. So, uh, so as, as you alluded to, a huge amount of effort went into decoding the human genome, and uh, now in collecting complete human genomes from thousands and then tens of thousands, and uh, now there are ambitious projects that seek to collect the genomes from millions, from millions of people. But that's only a tiny fraction of the genes that we carry around with us. And uh, in general, although human genetic research has been very promising in a lot of, in a lot of ways, it's also been very disappointing in explaining the differences between individuals. And in some ways that makes sense, right? Because you and I are 99.99% identical in terms of our human DNA. But uh, we might only be 10% the same in terms of the microbes in our gut or on our skin uh, or, or even in our mouths, although uh, the oral microbiota tends to be more similar. Mm-hmm. So, um, so so for example, today I can take someone and classify them as lean or obese with 90% accuracy based on their microbial genes, right? So that's kind of a fun trick. You might think that that's not that important as a test for obesity, right? Because you can probably tell if you're fat or not without knowing anything about your microbial DNA. But on the other hand, if I take your human genes, I can only perform that classification task uh, with about 50% accuracy uh, based on human DNA. And so what that means is that for some things like obesity, and then the same has more recently been shown for cirrhosis, for IBD and for a whole range of other diseases that are uh, that are trickier to diagnose, uh, that you can do these classification tasks very accurately based on based on looking at the microbial side of yourself.
0: That's pretty encouraging because what it means is that uh, with a non-invasive, not having to put a needle in your arm to get blood out, for instance, but to do a stool sample or a skin sample or a mouth sample, we may have a whole new set of uh, diagnostic. Uh, techniques that without even seeing a doctor effectively, you have a good idea of what might be wrong with you or, or even better, what
1: you should do to change your diet to move you to a healthier state. One of the really exciting things is the idea that we can take control of these parameters on our own bodies that we can measure. And um, especially, uh, you know, it's relatively difficult if you wanted to uh, take blood samples frequently at home, for example. That's not something that you want to do, sticking a, right. a needle into your veins every uh, every day or perhaps every 15 minutes if you needed a dense time series. But spitting into a tube or instead of flushing material that you were going to get rid of anyway, uh, analyzing the microbes in it first and right. all the metabolites that they produce. That that's certainly something that I think is on the horizon. Although it's obviously a, a huge big data challenge to try to figure out how do we take all these genes, all those metabolites, uh, potentially in a degraded setting like someone uh, someone flushing their toilet, and uh, analysing them and integrating them with the picture of that own person, but also the entire the entire population of the of the place where they live, uh, perhaps their relatives dispersed across the globe and so on. Right.
0: Yeah, I know I'm weird, but. Because I've taken stool samples and blood samples repeatedly now for six years to track uh, my body and <clears throat> discovering that I had um, inflammatory bowel disease, a Crohn's type of disease, and then tracking my immune system as well as the microbes, you know, I I have to say I've come to view stool as one of the most information-rich materials that I've ever seen, much more so than my computer disk drive. Because in each little tiny amount of stool there are a billion of these microbes and each one of those as we said has millions of DNA bases so it's almost like I want to take a sample and put it you know in a freezer every time I have a stool sample because like there's that's going to tell me more about my body than anything else I could do and yet we just throw it away and don't think about its value...
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I probably shouldn't show the show you this on TV, but uh, I'm doing exactly the same thing, and uh, this is this morning's sample. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the the value of collecting those um, the value of collecting those samples every day is that you get this unique and irreplaceable uh, view into the dynamics of your own body, and uh, certainly um, certainly I wouldn't ask members of the public uh, who are contributing to our, our projects like American Gut um, to do anything I wouldn't do myself, or that we wouldn't do uh, ourselves in our own lab, so uh, we do a lot of this kind of uh, do a lot of this kind of take development, trying to figure out how to make it as easy as possible mm-hmm. to go from stool um, or other samples around your body to data that you can actually use right well, talk to me a little bit more about uh, the American gut project because
0: <clears throat> you recently moved here to UC San Diego from uh, University of Colorado Boulder, and I believe you moved the headquarters of the American Gut Project. Tell me how many citizens have uh, shared their skin microbes or from their stool or mouth uh, with you to be part of this scientific
1: discovery process. Well, well, that's what's been so exciting. We, uh, we've we had over, uh, over 9,000 people sign up for the project at this point. It's very exciting being able to combine those different citizen science cohorts with uh, with clinical populations that we have access to, uh, for example, at uh, Rady Children's Hospital through the uh, Rady's uh, very generous gift for precision medicine, for example, and, and with the UCSD uh, hospital system, the VA and so forth, where people have expressed interest. And so being able to see not just what a picture of health looks like, but the relationship between different ways that your microbiome can go wrong and uh, could you intercept those kinds of dysbiosis before it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really where the unique combination of, uh, of microbiology and uh, ecology and mathematical modeling and computer science really come together to uh, provide a unique insight into our, into our bodies that just wouldn't have been possible a few years ago. Well, you know, I, I,
0: as a person who spent their life in physics and computer science, Uh, I really hadn't appreciated how much this whole process has become digital and why computer science... I mean, most people would say, like, isn't that a wet lab thing? Computer scientist, why why are you involved in that? So, you know, from the time you get your little tube with your little fluid in there that's got the sample and it goes into your wet lab, but then tell me a little bit about the software and all the computing that it takes before you can actually say, well, you've got... E. coli
1: and you've got salmonella or you've got good bugs instead. Oh sure, well the first step is to extract the DNA from the sample and uh, we do that primarily using liquid handling robots, which then also take the DNA forward uh, and uh, use a polymerase chain reaction to amplify a particular part of the molecule that's especially useful for identification. What we do then is we sequence that on a so-called next-generation sequencing platform. We do that at IGM, the Institute for Genomic Medicine, here on the UC San Diego campus. Then what happens, as you know from the um, IDI uh, infrastructure project that, uh, that, that you run, um, part of the challenge there is to move, move the huge amounts of data produced by that sequencing instrument over to SDSC and back to our lab, for example. Mm. So what happens is that the, the, uh, the, the way the sequencer works is essentially it's uh, taking a whole lot of very high-resolution digital photos as uh, single nucleotides are added on uh, to, to what's called a flow cell using microfluidics. So basically uh, looking at um, lo- a uh, fluorescent signal that's produced when an A or a T or a G or a C gets added onto this growing chain of nucleotides um, to read out the sequences there. Mm -hmm. So uh, essentially, the first step is to convert those photographs into uh, an estimate of the DNA sequence as well as the quality of that DNA sequence. Uh, then what we have to do is we have to cluster the sequences together by similarity to figure out which ones are like biological. Uh, using computers, uh, correct. Um, once you figure out which sequences are clustered together, uh, you then build those into a phylogenetic tree, uh, again computationally, so you can group each sequence with its relatives. And then you look at the different parts of the phylogenetic tree that uh, cover sequences with different samples, uh, compute a distance metric between the samples using the phylogenetic tree, and then use that as a basis for yeah. unsupervised order coordination Mm -hmm. of the communities overall. So then we also do things like machine learning, for example, to uh, do supervised classification of samples Mm -hmm. uh, to try to find features that are especially, uh, in in this case, particular organisms or particular genes that are especially influential for, say, separating health and disease or separating your left hand from your right hand um, or other kinds of tasks that we might do. And uh, then ultimately we need to uh, make that available in a usable form. So there's a, there's a fairly major HCI component to the project, trying to understand what, what can people comprehend. Because the last thing you want, especially in a 15-minute visit with your doctor, is a list of a uh, 1,000 species and a million genes that you're then going to inflict on them right. and have them try to interpret that. I mean, the way I think about it is
0: you've got this DNA. It's actually a little closed circle in the microbes and let's just say it's three million DNA bases. They can be A, T, C, or G, so it's like a code with four letters, Mm -hmm. and they can be at each of those three million bases. So you essentially use chemistry to read off chunks of that from each of the species that you have, um, say, in your gut, And essentially, the chemistry and the lasers and the flow cells and all this amazing high-tech stuff you have brought here to our wet lab uh, at UC San Diego, that then goes into essentially a computer database, which you can then compare with samples that you've done before. And from that, you can get... It's sort of like I think of it as a forest. You know, maybe it's an oak forest, and so you've got this many oak trees, and this many elm trees, and this many ash trees, and this many maple trees, and that's the ecology. And if it's a healthy oak forest, if you go to oak forest after oak forest after oak forest, you'll get a pretty similar result, although of course there'll be variation. But now you get to an oak forest that had a forest fire five years ago, and it's completely different because it's not healthy. And I think that's what we're
1: hoping that we'll be able to do with humans and their microbiome. That's a very good way to put it. And essentially um, essentially, where we are now is that we have uh, a bunch of snapshots from, say, a healthy oak forest. What we need to move much more towards, uh, both in a medical context and in the context of what people can do at home, is, uh, is, is to understand exactly what are the dynamics of when, uh, when the fire ravages that forest. Uh, so, uh, you know, in terms of the gut ecology, whether it's disease or antibiotics or, or, or what, um, and then how does the restoration process happen naturally, uh, how does it go wrong and how could we intervene to make it succeed. So in this case do we want to take little oak saplings and, and plant them or are they just, uh, you know, mm-hmm. are they just going to get too exposed to the sun and we need to put something else in there that's faster growing uh, that's going to let them eventually come through as a canopy. And so uh, these, these are exactly the kinds of questions that scale from um, ecosystems all the way to the continent scale and all the way down to what's happening on an individual fingertip or mm-hmm. what's, what's happening an individual microvillus within your gut. We've had, I don't know,
0: 150 years of the war on microbes, right? That the only good microbe is a dead microbe. After all, that's what antibiotics were useful for, and we've done a great job of getting rid of single species diseases, whether it's tuberculosis or mumps or measles, and sometimes it's virus and sometimes it's bacteria and so forth, but that world is not the world that we're discovering now, but rather that each of us is a very complex, dynamic ecology. Well, most folks in medical school don't get taught the principles of ecology, and so what we really are gonna need is people who both know the human medical aspect, but also are schooled in ecological principles, and so maybe we need more forest rangers to come and give lectures, you know, or or people who are in charge of environmental reserves to our medical students.
1: Yeah, that's certainly the basis for some of the things that we're thinking about in terms of uh, training grants that will uh, that will support the next generation of, of medical students because the focus on, on one organism can really lead you in misleading directions. You need to know um, whether organisms in the right place, you need to know whether it's at the right abundance. And so thinking about pathogens as, as weeds rather than as enemies I think is a really important evolving concept. The same microbe might be just fine in one context. Uh, but problematic in another. And even, even dating back to the 19th century, um, uh, it, it, was, it was known that most of the people who uh, had most microbes, including things like mycobacterium tuberculosis, which causes TB, uh, most of the people who have it are asymptomatic. Uh, they, they, they don't have any particular disease that you can see, even though they have the organism in their lungs. Right, right. And so, so understanding what happens when regulation goes wrong uh, that's exactly the kind of thing where, uh, with, with the simulation and modeling capabilities uh, we have on today's supercomputers like Comet, we might finally be able to make some progress in understanding in the complexity of e- ecology of our bodies, uh, considering the bacteria, the viruses, uh, the fungi and other components, and our immune system, how all of those work together to maintain homeostasis. I love your metaphor of the garden
0: with weeds. Um you know, if I look at it, my garden and I've got roses and I've got uh, daylilies and and then I've got some weeds, I suppose one thing I can do is go out and spray Roundup on the whole thing and kill it all, and which is sort of what broad spectrum antibiotics do when you take them. It's like a sledgehammer uh, uh, for this one little thing you're after, as opposed to instead of broad spectrum, very narrow spectrum tools that can say well. Why don't I just go and pull the weeds out (laughs) and let the rest of them alone? So tell us a little bit about what new tools, really, the gardening tools, we're going to need, say, five years from now when we really understand how to read out the state of our microbial garden and it's off and now we want to garden it back to health. What kind of tools are we
1: going to have? Well, well, the exciting thing is that there's a lot of new tools in development. So, uh, for example, there's narrow-spectrum antibiotics that, uh, that only target very particular kinds of the microbes rather than uh, wiping out everything. There's also things like phage therapy, where you have a virus that only uh, latches onto a very particular kind of microbe and essentially acts as its natural predator. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like releasing ladybugs into your garden to uh, try to control the aphids. Um, there's also prebiotics, um, so you've probably heard of inulin and resistant starch and so on, uh, but there's a whole lot of other compounds like that that potentially feed and fertilise the good microbes at the expense of the bad ones. And then there are probiotics, so uh, essentially like seeding uh, your garden with the right kinds of seeds. And um, especially, uh, especially in the case of, uh, of, of things like yogurt, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily know that, um, that the probiotics in yogurt are actually kinds of bacteria. Uh, so you're eating live bacteria uh, along with that yogurt that says it has live and active cultures. And um, it's really those live bacteria that are having good effects on your gut, mm-hmm. uh, helping to feed the cells that lie in your gut, and mm-hmm. uh, helping to moderate the activity of the microbial community overall. Yeah, I have to say
0: I hadn't really understood how much my health depends on the health of my microbiome until I started really analyzing it. Because, um, you know, it's like, why, why did my mother tell me to eat all these vegetables and, and in particular to get my fiber? I mean, I was willing to do it because I was a good son, but I never really understood why you would want to eat something that is not very digestible. And, and now I realize that the whole point is to get this stuff that survives the stomach acid, that gets to this small intestine, and finally gets to your large intestine. And then that's the raw material that these bacteria ferment into what are called short-chain fatty acids. The main thing, one of those is butyrate. It turns out that's the main energy source for my human cells that are lining the wall of my colon. So it's like I feed them fiber that my human body can't digest, and then they digest it and feed directly my human body. Wow, that's a whole different view of this symbiosis, basically, that, that, that exists between my microbes and, and me.
1: Yeah, so so that's exactly right, and it's even a step further. So there are a whole lot of uh, sugars in breast milk that the human genome doesn't encode any genes or any proteins that can break down those sugars. Uh, What they're doing is they're feeding the right kinds of bacteria so that uh, your your bacteria can develop in the right way to make you a healthy adult. So uh, so even breast milk, a lot of that is to feed the microbes in the baby uh, so that they can feed the baby rather than feeding the baby directly. Well, that's one of the reasons breastfeeding
0: is so important. But also we're finding uh, research has been showing that there's a big difference between having a natural childbirth and a C-section, which now a third of babies in America are delivered by C-section, because they have a different microbiome they start with. That's
1: right. So if, if, you, uh, if you come out the regular way, you get covered by microbes as you exit the birth canal. And uh, what, what happens if you're delivered by C-section? Um, it's fascinating. Instead of, instead of those microbes, what happens is that you pick up primarily skin microbes. Skin microbes for yeah. holding the baby. Exactly. <laughs> from, well, it might, we, we don't know that for sure. It might be from people handling the baby, uh-huh. or it might be just from what's in the air. How that works is that
0: our immune system, which is pretty well not capable of much when we're born as a baby, it actually figures out every time there's a new microbe in your microbiome and learns from that and boots itself up. So our microbiome, another of its services to us is to train up our immune system so we have a robust capability to ward off germs and and pathogens that that could do us
1: harm. And we have shortcutted a lot of that with our technology. Right, exactly. And that's, that's important, not just when you're born, but also in the context of if you have to reboot your immune system by, for example, bone marrow transplantation later in life. And uh, it's, a fascinating, it's a fascinating question whether, uh, w- whether, whether we should be trying to do that in a sterile environment or whether we actually need to educate the immune system and, uh, and uh, have it experience a wide range of microbes. Mm-hmm. Not uh, not not pathogens, but rather a uh, wide range of microbes from healthy people, uh, healthy environments, healthy animals to uh, be able to develop correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to really re-educate
0: ourselves. You know, we think so much of a human-centered world, and then we think, well, the biodiversity is the birds and the mammals and fish and plants and trees, these things that are like our size. But all those are the first order irrelevant compared to this world that's completely covered in microbes that our bodies are dominated by the microbes. I mean, essentially, we're in this microbial environment at all times, throughout all history, and all the animals and plants are as well. And yet we're just now being able to discover what this sphere of life is that we
1: exist in, that's a pretty special moment in time. We're perhaps the first species that's able to change the planet on a scale that the microbes have, because uh, if you look at, say, um, isotope ratios and um, uh, and redox states and so on, uh, the cyanobacteria changed the planet radically about 2 billion years ago. And, uh, we're, we're really the only species since then that's had, in some ways, the same profound effects on, uh, on, on global nutrient cycling. Uh, so, for example, we now fix more nitrogen than uh, any other process on the planet. Uh, this, this parts of South Asia, for example, where humans monopolise uh, more than 90% of net primary production. So, um, on the one hand, we're just one species, and uh, all of the plants and animals and fungi that we see around us are just these little twigs on the tree of life. But on the other hand, it is, uh, it is important to remember that we do have this tremendous capacity to change the environment that we live in.